0: Well, thank you guys for that warm welcome. I wasn't going to say anything about Pastor Hayden, but now it's obligatory since he threw the pancakes up up, up there. Um, You know, you might not know this, but uh, Pastor Hayden and I came on to work at Compass Bible Church in Aliso Viejo uh, about two weeks apart from each other, so we started at the same time, and uh, from day one, Pastor Hayden and I began to make a good friendship, and we sat together every single week at our staff lunch, and I had the privilege every single week of hearing the multitude of animal stories that Pastor Hayden has in his bank. I don't know if you guys have heard these stories. Do you guys know that Pastor Hayden is an absolute animal fact encyclopedia? Do you know? this, he would go and tell me stories from Ladonia, Texas all the time about how uh, hawks would come and pick up goats from his farm. Um, He would talk about his pet raccoon, Rachel. I don't know if you know that. Pastor Hayden had a pet raccoon that he named Rachel that lived in his house, okay? Okay. Um, and it was such a blessing to be with them uh, just this last week in Boise as uh, I got to sit at the dinner table and within the first five minutes hear about this ex- very rare endangered species of Galapagos tortoise. Uh, so it was a blessing to see him, and it is a blessing to be here. Um, as uh, as Pastor Hayden said, and as you know, I do hail from Aliso Viejo Compass Bible Church. I'm a pastor there, um, and that is in California, and yes, it is still there. Uh, God has not yet broken it off into the ocean and cleft it off, just so you guys know, it is still there, and there are still people to be ministered to, but I can say from our church perspective how much we are excited to see the growth and the establishment and the thriving of this church. Uh, we are, we're so excited that you guys were able to get into a building early. We love you. We pray for you regularly. We pray for your establishment, and we also pray for your growth, and uh, we just could not be happier in Aliso Viejo to celebrate with you what God is doing here and continue to pray for you uh, all the time. And I hope that you also are continually in prayer for this church. And I know as a church is getting established, that might be something that's a little bit easier to do. Maybe you're thinking there's so many moving pieces, there's so many things that are happening that maybe you want uh, you, you want to devote a specific amount of prayer to getting this church launched. But I always encourage you as this church is now getting established that you double down on your prayers. And the reason why I say that is because while you guys have gotten off to a good start, there are many churches out there that have gotten off to a good start that ultimately didn't make it there are a lot of churches that start well but don't end well there are a lot of churches that uh, get going off to a great fantastic start and reach their community but within a few short years or maybe a decade or so are dead and gone and their doors are closed and I don't say that to just scare you I say that as a reality I mean there's lots of reasons why churches don't make it and you might be thinking yeah I, I know of a church like that or I've been a part of a church like that many of us have and you might be thinking, yeah, there were maybe some issues, maybe there were financial decisions that were made that were bad, or maybe there were some bad leadership decisions or bad leadership in general that caused the church to cease. And I can tell you that while those things are present, from my experience pastorally, over the last 10 or so years I've been a pastor and what I've seen, the reason why churches end up closing their doors is not because of financial decisions or bad leadership. It is most often because disunity comes up in the church. The reason why most churches end up not succeeding, not growing, not thriving is because there is division that comes in and separates the people within a church and divides a church. There is a lack of unity within a church that ultimately can kill a church. And as you know, and as you should know, the unity of the church, the togetherness of the church, the commonality of the church as you come together is something that is taught over and over and over again in Scripture. This is a, it, 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 something that we are told we are commanded to do. We're to be unified. And this weird dichotomy is at place where on one hand we're told that we are unified. As a church, we have been made one in Christ. That there is, there is no distinction now between us altogether because we are one in Christ. That this is a cosmic theological reality that has taken place. That when you trust in Christ, you are placed into Him. And now He is the head and the body is one with Him, with the head. And yet while this is a cosmic reality, it's not always the practical reality on the ground. And so we're told over and over and over again in Scripture that yes, while you are unified in Christ, you need to be unified together as a church. We're commanded over and over and over again to be of the same mind, to be of the same heart, to be of the, the same mission, the same purpose, to love Christ together, to care for one another together, to be unified. And you might be thinking, well, why do we have to be told that? If it's been a reality, why do we have to work so hard? Or why does the Bible tell us so often that we have to be unified? And the reason is, is because there is so much diversity within the church. You see, what ends up dividing a church is just the diversity that happens within a church. The distinctions that are made because there's a diverse amount of people. If you think about this in the world, this is how division and disunity happens within the world, how fighting happens within the world. It's almost always because there is a distinction between two groups of people and they begin fighting. Whether that's distinctions between two races whether that's distinctions between different economic classes, one who's rich, one who's poor, one who's elite, one who's not, one who's the oppressed and one who's the oppressor. You see this motif all the time in the world that where there is distinction between people, there is disunity. And those distinctions, people begin to pit and look and fight against one another and the church divides. And so we are told that we are not to be like that as the church. And you might be thinking, yeah, but Pastor Doug... Aren't the distinctions, biblically speaking, that we have in the church gone? Aren't they done away with? You might be thinking of a passage like Galatians chapter 3 where it says there's no longer any Jew nor Greek, no longer any slave nor free, no longer any male nor female. Isn't that the abolition of distinction? Isn't that level the playing field? Isn't that what that passage is saying? Well, I want you to think of it this way. Paul is not saying that those distinctions go away in the church. He is saying that the gospel now comes in over that, and no longer is there any distinction in someone's ability to respond to the word of God, respond in faith, and respond to the gospel, whether you're Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. There's no distinction at all in that. But those distinctions don't go away. They're not abolished. They remain. Think about Paul's own ministry. He says that when he goes and travels to a town and preaches the gospel, he goes to the Jew first, then the Greek He's making a distinction and he's prioritizing which one he goes to. Even in the book of Ephesians, we have teaching about male and female and that, yes, while they are co-heirs in Christ, as Peter says, they are still distinct in their roles. There's a clear distinction between male and female. Even slave and free, Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the slave should stay in his position as long as he can unless he can be free, and there are certain requirements that he that he has to do as a slave. There's still a distinction, and we have a whole book of Philemon about the distinction between slave and slave owner in the context of the Bible. So we know that, biblically speaking, we're to be unified, and we know that the reason why disunity comes in is because there is distinctions among God's people, and we know that those remain even though we are called to be unified. So then how is it that we are supposed to be unified in the church while these distinctions remain? Well, the Bible says... So many things about this. It says that we should not be divided over things like economic status. We should not be divided over ethnic distinctions or financial status or gender or anything like that. The Bible clarifies our our responsibility within those distinctions. It says, okay, now that you know what the distinctions are, you have a responsibility. If you're the rich, you're to care for the poor. You're not to make everybody equal, level playing field. The Bible does not teach socialism, but you have a responsibility, if you were the rich, to the poor. You have a responsibility to the other party. If there's a distinction between male and female, there is now a responsibility for the male, the husband, the father, to lead the home and the wife to follow, to respect her husband. Those distinctions are there, and there is clarification on our responsibility given those distinctions. Now, there's lots of things in the church that could divide and I'm not going to go through all of them, that's not the point of this, but there is one distinction that I think the church often fails to recognize, fails to see, and this distinction can come in and creep into a church, even a new church, a young church like this that's all together in a small room like this that can come in and it can separate and divide. And if we don't have our eyes on this, if we're not paying attention to this, this can do massive, massive damage to the church. The distinction that I want to address is a distinction that you might not think too much about, and that is the distinction that is alive and present in this room right now, and that is the distinction between those who the Bible would consider spiritually mature and those that we consider spiritually immature. This is a clear distinction that we see in the Scripture, that there are those in this room, in this building, and in this church that we could categorize as being mature stable, steadfast, seasoned, endured trials, endured difficulty, and has been consistent in their faith, and those that are immature, those that struggle, those who have massive doubts, those who have moments of crisis in their faith, those that need to be uplifted and bolstered because they are weak and immature in their faith. The Bible calls it the spiritually weak, the immature, and the spiritually strong, The passage that we're going to look at today is going to tell us what our responsibility is, whatever whatever group you find yourself in, what the responsibility is to one another, and what the goal is, and that is to be unified. So if you would turn with me to Romans chapter 15, verses 1 through 7, I want to get your eyes on this text so that we can see how the Bible approaches this so that we can be unified, so that this church, this church can endure, so that this church can not just get started, but it can go on, it can survive, and it can thrive because unity doesn't creep in. Romans chapter 15, starting in verse 1, says this. It says, we who are strong, this is the mature Christian, those who are strong have an obligation. So obligation is a very strong word. This is, a, this is something you have to do. We have an obligation given to us from God to do what? To bear, to bear with the failings of the weak. If you find yourself being a strong Christian, if you put yourself in this camp, it says that you have the obligation to care for, to bear, to carry the weight of the failings of those who are spiritually immature in the church. And you're not to do this so that you get praise, so that you get accolades. No, it says not to please ourselves. Our goal in the Christian life is not to please ourselves, but then this in verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, not for our good, for, for his good, for the other's good to build Him up, to see Him edified, to see Him bolstered in the faith, to see Him strengthened. And of course, our ultimate example in verse 3 is Christ. For Christ did not come to please Himself. When He walked the source, He did not come to please Himself, but as it was written, and now here's a quote from Psalm 69, that Paul is now applying to Jesus, says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The idea that those that were sneering and cursing and slandering God For their sin have fallen on Christ. That's an example that it gives us in verse 3. It says in verse 4, now a little bit of a shift. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. Paul is pointing back here to the Old Testament Scriptures, and we can look at the entirety of the Bible and, and, and apply this and say, for whatever was written biblically for us was written for our instruction, to teach us, to train us, to help us think through this problem. That through the Scriptures... Right? That through the scriptures, that through the endurance and through the encouragement that is found in the scriptures, we might have hope. We might be able to deal with this problem. We might be able to have some sort of positive outlook that oversees and transcends what's going on with the diversity in the church. And it says in verse 5: May the God now who gives endurance, God of endurance and encouragement, grant you to live in such harmony. This is the idea of unity peace, oneness with one another in accord with Jesus Christ. In the same way that you are one with Christ, that that has been one for you on the cross, you are to now live with one another as one. That together, with one voice, another unity call, with one voice, you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Our second imperative here of the text says this as a command. It says, therefore, now what you're supposed to do is you're to welcome one another. It's the responsibility between the weak and the strong, the spiritually mature and the spiritually immature. You're to welcome one another. This isn't just saying hello. This has deeper implications than that. You're to accept one another, regardless of their status, regardless of their distinction of their spiritual maturity, as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Um, I don't think it's a surprise to you to say that we live in probably the most self-serving culture uh, ever that we've ever seen. The other day, I was driving into the office in California, and I'm sure it's worse there than it is here, but I was at the corner next to a gym when I saw this young woman walk up. She was in workout clothes. She had her hair up in a ponytail, and she looked mad. She was frowning. She was grimacing. She walked up to the corner with a selfie tripod. She put it on the corner. She set her phone up, still grimacing the whole time. Um, She made sure the light was on. She set it all up. She pulled her hair down, made sure she looked really, really good. She got the timer ready, and then she stood there grimacing, grimacing until the timer happened and went, "Eh." took a picture, and then went immediately back to grimacing, picked up her stick, and walked away. Our culture is obsessed with themselves. They're obsessed with doing whatever they think is going to get them the most pleasure, the most joy, the most clicks, the most likes, the most hearts on their phone. They want to be served. And they're miserable inside seeking their own selfish desires, but they can't help it because in their flesh, they have such a strong desire to please themselves. Our culture in general is obsessed with personal advancement, personal gain, personal mobility, personal advancement. Everybody, they want to do what they want. They want to eat what they want, they want to buy what they want, they they want what they want, and no one can tell them not to, and they will go to the extreme degree to actually have others be turned away and turn on others so that they can get what they want. Even in the business world, this happens where we see those that are what we would consider less than us, or a project, or someone who's weaker than us, or below us, as a personal business liability, that's how we phrase it. And so we look at others, and we say, "As long I'm going to engage with them as long as it helps me. I was scrolling through a social media thing, and I, and I saw that this post, and I, I looked at it because the first thing I saw was intriguing. It said, you know, things that you want to accomplish, how do you accomplish them? And the first line says, you want to get smarter? What should you do? And it said, you should read. And I was like, yeah, that makes sense. And the next one said, you, you want to have peace in your life? What should you do? It said, you should meditate. And I was like, oh. Uh, I don't don't know if I agree with that. Maybe if you're meditating on Scripture, it's going in the wrong direction. And then it said this, you want to help others? Think about that. You want to help others. That's a good goal, right, to help others. What should you do? Love yourself. That doesn't even make any sense. You're doing nothing for others by loving yourself. You're just loving yourself. But that is the way that the world thinks. That is the way that the world thinks, that the only way for you to help others is that you love yourself. Take care of number one. Take care of number one. It's all about you. It's all about you. So our culture, they refuse, even in the idea of loving others, to stoop down to the level of the weak. I mean, you hear it all the time in the culture. You might even hear it in your own home. You might say it to one another. You might hear it in the business place. It's, you have enough to deal with. Just deal with your stuff. You don't need to stoop to someone else. They're having a hard time. No, no, you've got enough to deal with. Take care of number one. You know, if you take on the burden of someone else, you're going to burden yourself. That's going to be a lot for you. How are you going to deal with that? You know, if you, if you take on the burden on yourself, the society, what they're going to do is they're going to mock you. They're going to shame you. They're going to scorn you. They're going to ridicule you because you're foolish. The reality is, is that for the culture, for the world, and it should not be this way for the Christian, is that self is their God. The love of self is their idol. It is their God, and that is what they love. But Christians are to be different. We in this room as believers are to be different. We are not to please ourselves, as the text says. We're to be selfless in our support of others, particularly the weak. So I want you to look with me at verse 1 again of Romans 15. And let me read this and just hear it again in this light. It says, We who are strong, the spiritually mature, we have an obligation now. This is not like the culture where you can just ride it off because it's hard for you. No, God says we have an obligation, a responsibility to these people to bear the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. This is not about us. This is not about protecting, number one. It's not about making sure that we get what we need. He so said let each of us now work towards this. We need to please our neighbor, to build him up. That's our goal. That's our obligation. That's our aim, just like Christ did, just like Christ did in verse 3. So, we're not to be like the world, we're to be like Christ. And I want you to write it down this way. We need to be people who selflessly help the weak. We need to selflessly help the weak, the spiritually weak, the spiritually immature in our churches. In this church, for those that are here that believe in Christ, there are people who are weak, and you need to selflessly, not caring about yourself, but only seeking their edification, build them up. Now, you may be thinking, who is the weak? Are you making fun of me because I'm a new Christian? Are you... Who is the weak? Are you saying that I'm weak? Well, I'm going to clarify what, what I think this, this means, the spiritually weak. In a general sense, I would say that there is there's a general category of those who are spiritually weak. Spiritually weak can often be those that are just new to their faith, Maybe you're a new Christian, and you, you don't know much about God's Word. You haven't been through trials. You haven't been tested. You haven't been seasoned. You haven't had a, had a crisis moment where your faith has been tested under fire, and you don't really even know. Or maybe you have, and you've found yourself lacking because you're just generally immature. You've been in the faith for a short amount of time, and you struggle often, and you say, yep, that's me. I'm generally weak. I'm weak in my faith. I'm not sturdy. When, when trials come and press against me, I crumble. That's the spiritually weak generally. But it might not just be the general case. You you might be weak in a particular area. Maybe categorically you could say, I've been a Christian for a long time. I've faced trials. I've undergone much difficulty, and I have maintained my faith in Christ, and I've been bolstered in it, and I am strong. I am generally strong. But that doesn't mean that you're also not weak. You see, the Bible says that you can be weak even as a strong Christian in a particular area. Maybe you're really, really good at dealing with one area of life, but when another area comes up, oh, you're weak, you can't handle it. Or maybe you're just weak because of circumstances or situations. Maybe you're weak in just a season of life. Maybe you're spiritually weak because you are facing a really difficult battle with some health issue with cancer, with something that's going on. Maybe you've got some family issue that is wearing you down, and because of weariness of your circumstance, you are finding yourself, though you are generally strong, to be weak in the moment, in this particular area of your life. You see, all of us as believers have moments of spiritual weakness. Now, there's the generally weak, there's the generally strong, but all of us, we need the support of one another when we face these challenges and difficulties of spiritual weakness in and of ourselves. You know, people might hear that, you might hear that, and you might think, okay, that's not too hard. All you're telling me to do is that when someone's struggling, I should help them. How hard could that be? Don't underestimate your propensity to be selfish in the flesh. Don't underestimate it. I, I, um, I had this guy that I worked with uh, in my youth group, and he was um, a, a frisbee freak. Like he was like really into ultimate frisbee. Like that's all he talked about. That's all he wanted to do. He played on an amateur ultimate frisbee league. Didn't know those existed. He was trying out for the pros. Didn't know that existed. And this guy, he was really good at frisbee. So of course, because he was strong in frisbeeness, he wanted everybody to participate with him in his love for frisbee. And so he would come to the youth group with a bunch of junior hires, and he would say, "Let's play." frisbee this is going to be great everyone's going to love it and this guy he was good he could stand at the edge of this auditorium here and he could say what do you want me to hit and I'd say hit that back pole and he'd bend it around these three and it would just nail it perfectly this guy was good. Uh, but you know what happened is that he came to the youth group and he uh, wanted to get everybody involved with frisbee and before long this guy was getting discouraged and he was getting frustrated and the kids were getting discouraged and frustrated because he wanted them to play at his level, and they weren't there. And uh, they wanted to just play and have fun, but he was so much higher than them. And all of a sudden, before long, the frisbee is in the tree; it's on the roof of the building, and everybody is mad and frustrated and upset. The reality is, when it comes to the spiritually weak, is that it takes a lot out of us to go down and help those and lift others up. It's not so easy; it can be draining it can be tiring, it can be difficult. And I think that's exactly what our text is saying that we should do, that we must do, that we're obligated to do, is that we have to bear, bear with the weak, which means that we're actually carrying our burdens. And so what we end up doing in trying to help the spiritually weak and selflessly doing that is we begin to justify reasons why we don't. We begin to say, uh, you know, it's not a valuable use of my time, you know, these spiritually weak people, the issue that they're struggling with is really small. It's just a really minuscule, really tiny thing. And, you know, if I was dealing with that, it'd be like, boom, got it taken care of, easy. And so, but for them, it's going to take a long time, so it's going it, to be a lot of my time, a ton of my time. I gonna have to sit with them and labor with them. They're broken up over a tiny little thing, spilled, crying over spilled milk. They, they, these type of situations, we could justify easily. And maybe you're even thinking, you know, these people that deal with simple things, I'm so mature, I don't want to talk about those things. I want to talk about the hard things. I want to get into theology. I want to get into the deep things. I want to deal with real problems, the hard things. Maybe you're justifying that. You don't want to kind of stoop down to their level in the mundane. Or maybe you're sitting there thinking, Pastor Doug, God does not want me. I know this. God does not want me to be drained, He doesn't want me to be exhausted, He doesn't want me to be tired. And every time I go and I deal with someone who's struggling in their faith, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I leave drained. I'd rather work with people on my same level. Just find someone who's right near me or maybe a little over me, and then that way when I leave, I'm encouraged. God wants me to be encouraged, right? Remember, it says, bear with the failings of the weak. Not to please yourself. This isn't about you. You're to bear with the failings of the weak. You might be thinking, you know what, I've tried this, Pastor Doug, and um, it's really frustrating and it's annoying because the spiritually weak, they just do dumb things, right? They just, just just, do dumb things. I give them my input. I give them my advice. I lead them in Scripture. I show them what they should do, and they just don't heed it, and so they just do really difficult, annoying things. They don't listen. They do dumb things, and so what we're doing in that is we're attributing fault to them, and we're saying, because they didn't do it, because they messed up, it removes my personal responsibility to come alongside and help support them, to bear them. But that's what our text says, is that we're not only to bear with the weak, we're to bear with the the failings of the weak. Think about Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6 says this, says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, we're talking about Christians, and we're talking about sin. We're not talking about just little mess-ups. We're talking about transgression. We're talking about sin, maybe even pattern of sin. If any brother in this church is caught in sin, what are you to do? It says, you who are spiritual. That's the strong, the spiritually mature, those that kind of have it together at this moment. You who are spiritual should restore him. You're not to ignore him. You're not to write it off. You're to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. You're not to push him aside or cast aside him. You're to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. And it says this, it says, keep watch for yourselves thinking you think you're spiritually strong. Be careful that you too might not be tempted because you're not so great after all. Be humble about it. And then in verse 2, it says, bear one another's burdens. That in this context, that even if someone fails, even if someone stumbles in sin, we're to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. The culture gives us so much social scorn over this. They say, you know what, you know, that's beneath you. That's below you. Don't go down to their level. Why spend your time with them? And if you think this is a new thing, this is not a new thing. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm 69. Psalm 69, that's the passage that's quoted here in our text of Romans 15. But in Psalm 69, we have um, a psalm about David who is the king. And if you think about someone who, you know, you would imagine would not go down to the level of, you know, the weak or the, the lowly, it would be the king of Israel, the exalted king of Israel, God's chosen king. He is high. He's in, he's in a palace. He is up there. He's got a crown on his head. He's anointed by God. He is the king. And it says this in verse 9, David, who is dealing with the sins of the people who have turned against God, who are slandering and smearing the nation name of God he says this he says for zeal for zeal for your house has consumed me he is passionate about God's holiness he is passionate for the worship of God and he is saying that it, it's consumed me he's taken it upon himself And he says, and the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. This is the the text that's quoted in our passage in Romans 15. He's saying that the people that are out there slandering you, he's saying, I'm taking that burden of their sin and I'm placing it on myself. I'm dealing with it. And so, what's the response of the people to him doing this, stepping into their lives and bearing this before God for the people? It says, when I wept, he's now distraught about this and I humbled my soul with fasting he's not he's not at the point where he's saying I'm the king I shouldn't have to deal with no he's humbling himself he's probably mourning with sackcloth and ashes on he's fasting he says it became my reproach I'm gonna bear it he said when I made sackcloth my clothing he says I became a byword to them people were just going look at the king look at the look at the king what is he doing what's the king doing why is he stooping down why is he dealing with this why is he humbling himself like this He's too good. He should be lifted up. He should be exalted. He's the king. It says, I'm the talk of those who sit in the gate. People in the city are just talking. What is the king doing? What is the king doing? Even the drunkards, even the lowest in the society, those that are wandering around as drunks, they're making songs about me. This is how bad this is. You know, The the culture around us is going to say, don't do it. And even the Christian culture is going to say, don't stoop to the level of the spiritually weak. Don't do it. It's not worth it. It's going to be drained for you. You have better things to do. You are better than that. You've got more important things. And you've got to look at this example that's being referenced to David and say, ooh, if David did it, maybe I should do it. But what Paul does in our text is he doesn't attribute this to David, even though this was originally attributed to David. He attributes this to, to Christ. And if you think about this, this is exactly what Christ is doing. You see, Christ did not come to please himself. Jesus' Jesus's plan was not to protect his time. Jesus' plan was not to protect or limit his frustration that he had with other people or to decrease difficulty in his life, to press that down and just do what was easy, or to lighten his load. It's the exact opposite of that. Jesus came to take on your load of your sin and that burden, and take it on to himself. He humbled himself to take on your problems. Even when he was here on this earth, he didn't limit his time. He didn't say, you know what, those Pharisees, those religious elites, or my disciples, you know what, they just don't get it, and they're annoying, and they're frustrating. I'm just, I'm just going to stay away from them. Nope, he went for them. He went to, to sit with the sinners and to tell them the truth of the gospel. He went to them. He took on the burdens of that upon himself for the sake of people. He didn't lighten his load. He carried your load. He didn't care about the accolades of the religious elite of the world at the time. He didn't care about that. He didn't care what they said about him. He said, you know what? I have a responsibility to bear the burdens of the weak, which is all of us in this case. His purpose was not to see himself elevated when he was here on earth he was humbled, and it says he was humbled to the point of death, being obedient to the point of death on the cross. That's how humble he was, and so we too, as we think about the weak and we think about being selfless, we need to be humble and selfless like Jesus was selfless. Turn with me quickly uh, to Philippians chapter 2, because I think this is such a good summary of what is being said here. Such a good summary. The beginning of Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, what is he saying? He's saying, if you are thinking about Christ and you have any l- level of response, if you're encouraged by thinking about what Christ did, okay, if you, if you realize what Christ did in bearing the penalty for you, taking upon your burden of your sin upon himself and bearing the wrath of God, if you have any encouragement in that, now here's a list of things to do. If you have any comfort from that, any love, if you have any appreciation for what Christ has done for you, if you have any participation in the Spirit, now that, that God has, has in the Spirit placed you into Christ, made you one with Christ, and now has indwelt you with the Spirit, if you have any participation in that, if you have any good feelings, things that are positive because of that, if you have any affection for Christ, any sympathy for Christ in what he did, knowing that he didn't have to, if you have any of that, it says, complete my joy, Paul's joy here, by being of the same mind. The same mind as who? The same mind as, as Christ by thinking the same way about one another. Having the same love, the same love that Christ had and that he bore your penalty and now you bear the failings of the weak. Being in full accord, here's unity, and of the same mind. Be united in mind with Christ and with one another. Do the same things. And then here's the crux of It, it says now in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. This isn't about you. It's not about lifting yourself up. It's not about doing what you want says, but now in humility, count, reckon others as more significant than yourselves, even if they're not. Even if they're not. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, because you're going to do that naturally. You don't have to be told to take care of number one. You're going to do it, okay? You need to be told, but also for the interest of others. Don't just look out for you. Look out for the interest of others to build them up like Christ did. So we need to help the spiritually weak. We need to take on their burdens like Christ did, like, like David did. We need to follow this responsibility. But we also need to know how to do it. If we don't know how to do this rightly according to God's word, then we might not be successful in seeing the church unified in maturity as we grow together. We might, not see, we might see division happen if we don't know how to strengthen the weak. And so the Bible gives us what we should do by implementing the right support by implementing the right support. Uh, I'm a California boy, I'll admit it, and um, I grew up skateboarding. I was obsessed with skateboarding. Um, And let me tell you something about skateboarding. Uh, If you're six foot four, like I am, skateboarding is not the right sport for you. So if you're young in here and you're like, I want to skateboard and you've got trajectory for height, just go a different direction. Uh, The reason why you should do that is because it's a really long way down, okay? And when you slip out on your skateboard, it hurts. There was a season of my life where I think I, I had a sprained wrist for like weeks. I must have sprained my wrist like 10 times because every single time I fell, I would fall and my giant six-foot-four frame would fall on the ground and all my weight would fall on my wrist and I would have a sprained wrist. It was weak. It was so weak, even the smallest little movement, the smallest thing would, would cause my wrist to just hurt. remember one time just lightly hitting a punching bag and my wrist just, just lost it. It just hurt so bad. And so I needed to strengthen that wrist of mine, and so I tried all kinds of things. I tried that creams, you know, you hear on the radio, they're supposed to rub them in and get rid of pain. Yeah. I tried those bandages that are really loose, and I'd wrap them around myself and try that. i tried some exercises to make sure my wrist was okay. I tried to strengthen it that way. I went to the doctor, make sure it wasn't broken, get some input from him. I tried so many things to strengthen my wrist, but what I really needed was the right support. It wasn't until I got that really, you know, firm wrist guard that had the metal plate on the inside and just the really strong Velcro straps that I was able to get back out there and skateboard, which is what my goal was. My goal as someone who loves skateboarding was not to give up on skateboarding because my wrist was hurt. It was to persevere. It was to endure. It was to get back on the board and shred the gnar, as we say. Okay? So, I needed the right support. We need to employ the right support for those that are weak in our midst, spiritually weak in our midst. What is that right support? The right support, you can do lots of things. You can spend time, you can give energy, you can do lots of things. You can care, you can love, you can encourage, but the Bible says all those things, that might help a little, but there's one thing that's really gonna help them, and that's by employing Scripture. Look at verse four. It says, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. This is a benefit to us, this is to help us. That through endurance, we're going to keep going, we're going to persevere, we're going to get back on the board, we're going to help, we're going to keep going, we're not going to give up, and through the encouragement of what? Of the Scriptures, we might have hope to keep going, to not lose faith, to not lose heart. So I want you to put it this way for point number two. Not only should we selflessly help the weak, but we need to help them by strengthening the weak with Scripture. That is the right support that God has designed and employed for us to give into the lives of people to help support them when they are weak. If you're sitting with someone and they're struggling in their faith and they're, they're really having a hard time and they're thinking about chucking the whole thing, they're thinking, you know, I can't endure, I can't persevere, I need something, what should you do? Well, you should give them scripture. They're struggling with a conscience issue, they need Scripture. They've fallen into temptation. They need Scripture. Think about our example of Jesus that when He even was tempted by Satan himself in the wilderness, He employed Scripture to fight off that temptation. If Jesus, our Savior, our Lord, is doing that, then we need to be doing the same thing. We need to employ Scripture when we are struggling, when we feel tempted, when we are weak, and we need to employ that not only in our lives but in the lives of other people to strengthen the weak with Scripture. When people are weary, bring them back to the Word of God. Uh, one more passage I want you to turn to, uh, and it's a long one, so I need your eyes on it. Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah, Old Testament book of the Bible. Nehemiah chapter 8. I think this is a great example of how people can be strengthened and encouraged with Scripture, and I want you to see it. Because I want you to remember the context of the book of Nehemiah. If you don't know, I'll tell you here. Is that There's a group of people, God's people, the Israelites, and they're taken into to exile. They're in Babylon. They are away from their home. From the promised land that God has given them. Because of their sin, they're being punished. And they are there in this land, and they're underneath the ruler of foreign kings. They are essentially enslaved to evil rulers, and they are without their worship. They are without their priests. They are without their leaders. And they, I would think you could say categorically, are weak. And then they finally get the opportunity to go back to the land, but as they go back to the land and they start to want to rebuild the temple, they realize that even though they've been now 70 years apart from God's love and provision in the land and with temple worship, they realize that when they get there, they're surrounded by enemies, that everyone around them wants to come and and kill them and take their land, and they don't want to be there. And so what do they do? They decide what they need to do is they need to build a wall. They need to do the hard work and the labor of building a wall in the midst of people attacking them. Think of how hard that would be. In the midst of people actually fighting you, they are there with a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other to build a wall. It's a lot of work. If there is a, a, a tired and weary group of people, spiritually speaking and physically speaking, I think it's this group of people. They are worn down, they're exhausted, and they're tired. And it says this in Nehemiah chapter 8. It says, and all the people... They gathered as one man, they were united together, into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses. They wanted the word of God. They gathered together and said, give us scripture, give us the word. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly. Before everybody, here comes the word. Both men and women and all who could understood what they heard. Everybody here was gathered on the first day of the seventh month. And he read it from facing the square before the water gate from early morning till midday. He went from like 6 a.m. till like 2 p.m. You've been here for like 25 minutes. You're already tired of my sermon, right? You're like, when can we get lunch? They are so excited. They're weary. And what they want is they want scripture and they're they're there. It says, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, everybody was there. And it says, in all the ears of the people were attentive, attentive to the book of the law being read says in verse 5, it says, Now Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was above. He was standing above all the people while they remained in their places. And he read, sorry, I skipped something. Uh, it was, Ezra was there in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. And as he opened it, all the people began to stand. Think of how tired you would be. You're so weak, you're so exhausted, you're spiritually drained. And here the people, they're, they're standing in response. They're responding and they're, they're feeling the presence of actual physical bolstering. Someone coming up alongside of them. It's just the word of God doing this. And they're saying, I'm encouraged. I'm encouraged enough to stand, even though I'm tired. I'm going to stand. It says, and Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people now are responding. They're saying, amen, amen, lifting up their hands. They're beginning to now worship. Their faith is bolstered. It's increased. Though they were, they were weary, now they're responding not only by standing, but by praising God. And then they began to bow their heads and worship the Lord with their faces to the ground. They're now responding to God's word, recognizing their sin. They're dealing with their own selves rightly before God, with the right position that He is above them and they are humbled. It says in verse 7 that all these people that were there, all these priests, they helped the people to understand the law. They then explained it to them. They, They encouraged them with the word and explained them to it so they could understand the meaning of it. It says in verse 9, Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, who was the priest and scribe, and all the Levites who taught the people said to the people, This day of the Lord is holy to your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the Lord. They were so moved by the Scripture in their lives that they began to weep. And Nehemiah clarified and said, Don't weep. Don't feel bad. Rejoice. Because of what God has promised to us in His Word. Then verse 12, it says, And all the people went their way. Then they left. They left from this assembly, though they're tired, though they're weak they left, and they began to eat and drink and send gifts to one another, food, and they made great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. This is the example of, of, of this people who were so weak. We're were were so apt to do things to help people that are helpful but aren't the most helpful. We want to spend time with people, we bring them food, we, we, we take care of their physical needs, we're present with people when they're struggling, we want to weep with those that weep, but yes, we need, more importantly, to give them Scripture, because that's the thing that's going to strengthen them and bolster them. So let me give you some things that I, I think applicationally would be helpful for you, which is, if you're feeling tired and weary and weak, personally, don't skip the gathering and assembling together of the church to hear the Word of God and hear it explained. That is a means of your strengthening that God has designed for you to be bolstered in your faith. If you have other people in your life, a part of this church, who make it a habit of forsaking the fellowship together, which it says we should not do in the book of Hebrews, encourage them not to skip the gathering together of the saints in this church. You need to be someone who employs Scripture to help the weak understand it. If you've got people who are struggling and they have wrong ideas about God or themselves or what they should do and the decisions they have to make, you need to first go to Scripture. And it might cause some pain at first when you go to that because it might act as it says it is a dual edged sword. It might divide and cause a division in their life as they recognize that they don't sin rightly before God and what they're doing. But it ultimately is our encouragement as it leads us ultimately to Christ. It leads us to God, it leads us to who He is, and it gives us a right position humbly of who we should be and how we should act. Which means this, everyone, that you need to know Scripture. If you don't know Scripture, if you're not reading and meditating and memorizing and listening to sermons and diving into books and taking classes and going to lectures and doing discipleship programs, then you might not have the tools that God has told you it's your obligation to bear with the burdens of the week and lead them into Scripture you might not have the tools to do that. I mean, we have programs designed for this. Even our partners program that we do in our Compass Churches is meant to lead people in Scripture, to bolster them, to give them an understanding of Scripture, to strengthen them. If you've done partners, maybe you need to take someone through partners. If you've done it for yourself, don't just have it be about you. Now, seek how you can bless someone else by taking them through partners. You might be saying, hey, Pastor Doug, Pastor Doug, I don't know that much about Scripture. That's why I don't do it. Let me just say this. You might not know everything. You might not know as much as Pastor Hayden or Pastor Evan. You might not know as much as the Christian who's been a Christian for 20 years. But you know something, right? Today, you know Romans 15. You know John 3.16. You know something. Everybody has something. You're reading something. You know something. Use what you know. Just use what you know. Just try it. Strengthen them with what you know. This is not just about your growth, your motivation. And you think about even spending time in Scripture, even thinking about the DBR. I know so many people who struggle with daily reading. So many people who day after day come to me and say, it's just a burden. I just don't get anything out of it. I just don't get anything out of it. I just don't understand. I don't get anything out of it. If you think about that, the focus is so much here. It's about me. It's about my growth. It's about my edification. It's about me growing. It's It's about me. It's about me. It's about me. If you're struggling in the DBR, if you're struggling to understand God's word, maybe change your perspective when you sit down to read to ask God, What in this passage do I need to know to strengthen the life of someone else? To bolster the maturity of someone else? To encourage someone else? You start to take that perspective in your life, you're going to start to have a greater depth of understanding of the scripture. And I could say that pastorally, that's typically the way that it works. The reason why pastors tend to know more about the Bible than other people is that we're constantly employing it in the lives of other people, not necessarily always for ourselves. Just write this verse down. You don't have to go to it, but just write it down on a notepad somewhere. Psalm 119, verse 36, and don't forget the 36 because this is the longest chapter in the Bible. You'll never find it, okay? Psalm 119, verse 36 This is something that you can pray as you sit down to read the Word of God, and you should pray to give you the right perspective. And it's this says this. Says, Incline, incline my heart to your testimonies. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Help me to love your word, God. Help me to have my heart inclined to them, to care about them. And then says this, and not to selfish gain. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. And, And and yes, this goes two ways. This is not just what I can get for myself not just about riches and pleasures and fulfillment, but incline my heart to your testimonies and not to those things, but for the sake of other people. If you prayed that prayer every time you sat down with your Bible, you might be more inclined to know Scripture and employ Scripture in the lives of people. Scripture is our means of instruction. It's our means of support. It's the encouragement we need. The goal of it is to see the whole body mature together. The whole body is supposed to mature together. Verse 5 of our passage back in Romans 15 says that yes, the scripture is going to be an encouragement, but ultimately there is someone that is doing this behind the scenes, and that's clearly God. It says this made the God now of endurance. If someone's going to give you endurance, the scripture is going to help, but God's going to be the one that does it. And the God of endurance and encouragement, may he grant you to live in such harmony and such peace with one another in such unity with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, in the same way that Christ is, that together, that everyone in the group may glorify God with one voice, one voice together. And then the imperative is given. It says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. Welcome one another. This means, this is not just say hi when you're greeting out in the lobby and make sure you welcome people. This is, whoever is in this church Weak or strong, mature, immature, struggling, or firm in their faith, welcome them. Don't push them aside. This means that you have to pursue unity, pursue the maturity of every single person in this church by strengthening them. So I want you to write down point three like this. We need to prayerfully strive for unity. Prayerfully strive for unity. Of course, God is the one that is doing this, so we have to pray, but we can't just pray and then walk away. We've got to strive, push ourselves to see everybody in the church matured. Because unity, it doesn't happen passively. We have to go after it. There should be no division in this church because of this issue, because all of you are committed to it. All of you are committed to bolstering one another, and so the maturity is rising together, and this distinction between the levels of maturity in this church is not a dividing factor. It won't be. Because everybody's working towards the same goal. And the goal is what it says in Ephesians chapter 4. It says we're to build up the body. That's the goal. until so we all attain to the unity of faith, that we're all in the same place, and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to maturity. The goal is that all of us are maturing together. And as we mature together to the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ, that is when we are unified, when we're unified in goal and in purpose. So we need to have a steadfast commitment to one another to see the whole body grow no matter what, and we need to strive to that end, welcoming every single person in our midst. Let me just say something about just ministry involvement in this church, Uh, ministry involvement here. Um, You have this thing designed just perfectly for you that is starting up again, as I heard, this next week, which is life groups. You realize that the environment of life groups, this whole setup of this, the whole reason why this exists is for this very purpose. The reason why the church encourages people to get into groups of people where they focus in on what the scripture says with one another is so that the weak and the strong come together and encourage one another for their mutual upbuilding and encouragement so they would be bolstered in their faith, so they would grow together, unified together. That's the whole point. And I've heard so many people say, you know what, I didn't go to life group this week because I just had a really hard week. I've been kind of depressed. I've been kind of sad. and I just needed some time. I, I just didn't go because I, was, I felt weak. That's the point of the life group. Just, I, I had a bad week. I don't want to go. That's the point. Is when you have a bad week, you go to the life group so that those that had a good week that are strong in their faith can bolster you and lift you up. Or I hear people say, you know, it's just really draining and weary because I'm always the one leading in the group. I'm always the one pointing people to Scripture. I'm always the one directing and supporting. Like, I'm doing it a lot and it's tiring. That's the point, too. The point of these groups is that there are people who are strong and people who are weak together, and you are supporting one another and growing together towards the goal of maturity. All of us need to continually go to God in prayer and ask that this church would be unified, to strive for it, but to strive for it in such practical ways that we don't forsake the gathering together. We don't forsake the week. We welcome one another. We pursue one another. So we need to seek God when these barriers and these frustrations arise. Pray when it gets hard. Roll it over to God and ask for help. But don't stop pursuing one another. Um, I am in a phase with my family that I call the game phase. It's the game phase right now, and and I don't mean video games, I don't mean games on phones, I mean like real games, you guys remember those? Games that you would sit down, board games, you open them up, games like Monopoly, Kids Monopoly I enjoy more than normal Monopoly because it goes faster, Uh, Candyland is good, but our absolute favorite right now is Uno. (laughs) We love Uno, and I love Uno as dad and games in general because of what it does for our family. What it does is it takes everybody who might be in a different room of the house on a different device or playing with their dolls or whatever they're doing in together and it brings us all together, it unifies us. That's what I love about games. And we're sitting there with a common purpose of spending time with each other, of playing games with each other. And it usually goes pretty well. And you would think in that context, what a great example of unity. Everybody's kind of of the same mind, you're one family, there's not a lot of distinctions, but there is a distinction that divides us. You see, me and my wife, and my oldest daughter, who's nine, we understand the rules of Uno. We understand how we're supposed to play Uno. We understand how to strategize. We know that you got to put a red on top of a red or a number on top of a number. But I have a younger daughter who doesn't quite understand the rules really well. And as much as this thing is meant to unify, that simple distinction in her maturity to understand the game of Uno causes division in our game time. We start to get mad with her it's not your turn. It's not your turn. It's not your turn. That doesn't go on there. That's not how you play. That's not right. That's not how you do it. Because she doesn't get it. She doesn't understand. She's not mature enough to get Uno. And then she starts to get frustrated with us. She's not having fun. She's not enjoying it. She feels beat down. She just wants to play. And if we approach that situation in our house with the game of Uno, that we're just there to have fun for ourselves, then... What's going to end up happening is everybody's going to get frustrated and go away. But that's not the goal of what we do. The goal of what we're there to do is to be unified as a family. So what we do as parents is we step into her weakness and we help her. We're not just there to destroy her and Uno because she's not a good player. That's not the goal because we're better than her. Sometimes it's the goal, but it's not the goal. The ultimate goal is unity. So what we do is we help her even to our own detriment. Sometimes we show her our cards and mess up our opportunities. Sometimes we stop the game, we mess up the strategy in order to help her. We slow the game down, we don't make it as fun, but the goal is that we all together are growing in our ability to play uno so that we can be unified as a family because that's our goal. Listen, it has got to be our thrust, it's got to be our drive to see the whole church mature together. If it's all about you and seeing yourself mature, there's going to be division. It's got to be about every single party, especially the weakest in our midst, to come alongside them, to grab them, and to forsake what we might even want in that situation, to give of ourselves, to bear one another bur- burdens, to seek God, to employ Scripture, to pray and to strive and to welcome them so that the whole church is built up together in unity and maturity. If you guys would do that this week and moving forward, I am convinced I am convinced that this church will continue to grow. This church will continue to to survive, and it will thrive, and it will keep going, because there's no division in this church that's going to separate you, and this is the goal. So, make that their goal this week and moving forward. Let's pray. God, thank You, first and foremost, for the reality of what it says in Your Word, that we are unified, first and foremost, in Christ that you have made us one with the Savior by his work and not our work. God, we want to live in that reality. We want to, don't want to forsake that reality. We want to do everything according to what your word says and help us, God, to do that. Help us to deny our flesh and the desire that we have to please ourselves. Help us not to be, to be selfish. Help us to give of ourselves like Christ did and care for others in our midst. And God, I pray that this church would be a church that goes on for many, many generations to come not just days and weeks and years and months, but, God, that this would go on for generations, that this church would be a church that's known for being unified with one another and caring for the mutual encouragement and support and upbuilding the maturity of every single member. God, let not disunity come into this church. Help them to be unified and to care and to pursue one another in such a way that helps each and every person and glorifies you. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching us and instructing us through it. In Jesus' name, amen.